if you have your Bible with you, you can open to Exodus chapter 40. Last chapter in the book of Exodus. We are finishing Exodus today. We may do, I have not decided yet, we may do sort of a, uh, a one-sermon recap next week. I'm not entirely positive on that. Uh, but just so you know, and you can be thinking ahead, uh, as we finish Exodus, before we uh, move into another uh, book of the Bible to work through, we're going to take anywhere from four to six weeks to talk about um, the elements of our worship service, everything from the call to worship that we have at the beginning to the time that we give to the Lord in prayer, to the reading of Scripture, to the preaching of the Word, to the ordinances, uh, one of which we'll uh, share in today. Um, Part of that is because even as we're seeing here, as we'll mention in just a moment in Exodus 40, it seems fairly clear and obvious that for um, all of God's grace and kindness to his people, one of the ways that God extends his grace to us is by showing us or demonstrating to us how we worship him. In other words, he has not left us to our own devices to think, what is a good way to worship? He has shown us in his word what good God-honoring worship looks like. And so what we would like to do when we do this series on our, the elements of our worship service is to try to say that while there are certain elements that are going to be unique based on the, the local context or the, the situation of a church, there are certain things that we see in Scripture that seem to be, if we can say it this way, somewhat universal. This is just the way that God has led his people to worship him when they gather together through both the Old and New Testaments. And we're simply trying to imitate that. We're trying to see what God has said in his word and to then live that way. So we don't want to assume or take anything for granted. We want this church in every way, whether it's in our gathering on Sunday morning or the things that we do together or separate through the week to be governed and guided by God's word. Exodus chapter 40. We won't read the entire chapter, but read with me the first few verses in chapter 40, and then we will skip to the last several verses at the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you will set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall place the ark of the testimony there. And you shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it. And you will bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and shall consecrate it and all its furnishings and it shall be holy. And then as we pointed out last week, if you skip down to verse 16, you begin to have this repeated refrain. Verse 16, thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Again in verse 19, 
He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Skip down to verse 21. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And we get that refrain in verse 23, in verse 25, in verse 27, in verse 29, and in verse 32. When they entered the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar, and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, the heavens are your throne room and the earth is your footstool. How will you be contained in anything that man would build or construct for you? Your glory fills the earth. You are the fullness and perfection of all life and joy. How foolish we are to be enamored with other things, with other people. And yet so often, our eyes are diverted from you. Our hearts chase after things that can never truly satisfy. We are tempted and led away by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But you are faithful and merciful and compassionate to your people. You have promised to never leave us and forsake us because of Jesus and for his name's sake. And so by your spirit, Father, we ask that as we spend this time in your word and as we turn our attention to observe the Lord's Supper, that you would make yourself known to your people as only you can, that you would give us a settled confidence and assurance that you are here with us in our midst, and that that would be our increasing desire to know you more. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So this is the climax of the book of Exodus, and, he, and you would be hard-pressed, at least my humble opinion, hard-pressed to find the conclusion to a book in the Bible that ends as well as Exodus does. It sort of strikes a, a good balance on the one hand. It is, it is a, a perfect wrap-up of everything that has happened from Exodus 1 all the way to Exodus 40 here, and then also leaves open perfectly more room for the story to develop, right? All of this, everything that has happened in Exodus is moving or has been moving to this point, to the place and time in which God descends to dwell, to live, to abide, to remain with his people. 
before we look at, particularly, we're going to spend all of our time essentially in verses 34 through 38. We could spend several weeks in 34 through 38. We're not going to try to do that, but we are going to limit ourselves there. Let me say two things, though, just by way of casual observation, so to speak, about the uh, about 80% of chapter 40. One, did you notice in 40 verse 1 and 2, when is it that the tabernacle is to be erected? First day of the first month. Essentially, on the Hebrew calendar, they are going to mark the new year with the raising of the tabernacle. Two weeks before, they'll celebrate their first Passover after having come out of Exodus or out of Egypt. By the way that the, the chapter ends, this is quite a way to kick off the new year. And then the second thing that we might take note of, and again, we've already alluded to it even as we're talking about where we're going to be going next after, uh, after our time in Exodus, is to see that the repetition that we have that, the, that Moses did just as the Lord had commanded him is again, on the one hand, a necessary reminder of the importance of obedience for God's people. The Lord spoke, Moses obeyed. We ought not to confuse ourselves with the idea that because we are saved by grace, that that grace does not turn us into obedient sons and daughters. But the other thing that we want to take note of is that one of the reasons that we have this repetition in chapter 39 and 40 about the people and Moses doing all that the Lord commanded them to do is a way to essentially say that from this point on, the focal point of Israel's worship is exactly what God intended and what God provided. God has given his people the means by which they can rightly worship him and enjoy him. It needs to be said that the best kind of fellowship and communion that we will have with our God and with our Savior is that fellowship and communion that he has ordered and directed and provided. It is foolish for us to think that we can improve on what God has called his people to do. Three things that we want to take note of. The climax of Exodus is God descending to dwell in the midst of his people. We're going to try to make three points. Number one, that God's glorious presence is unapproachable. You see that in verses 34 and 35. Number two, that God's presence leads his people home. In verses 36 and 37. And then number three, God's presence is steadfast and known. The last verse, verse 38. So God's glorious presence is unapproachable. God's presence leads his people home. And God's presence is steadfast and known. Look at the first, first two verses of the last paragraph, verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Some people have suggested that the reason that Moses cannot go into the tabernacle is because now that it's been erected and that God has taken up residence, this is now the mark, the beginning of the priesthood, Aaron and his sons. Therefore, whereas Moses had been the one to meet with God and to go in and out and reveal and relay to the people what God was revealing to Moses, now that the tabernacle is here and God has already planned for and provided for another priest, Aaron, to come in, that that's why Moses cannot enter in, because now a, a new arrangement has been made. I don't think that's what's happening. The reason that Moses cannot enter into the tabernacle is because God has filled it. Let me, just to, just to show you sort of the, the, the tension here, hold your place in chapter 40 and go back to chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 15. Then Moses went up to the mountain... And the cloud covered the mountain. That sounds like chapter 40 where the cloud covers the tent. Verse 16, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. The cloud covered the mountain, the cloud covers the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord rests on the mountain. Literally, by the way, the verb there in verse 16 the glory of the Lord tabernacled on the mountain. And here in chapter 40, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. He called to Moses from the midst of the crowd, or from the midst of the cloud, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses, 24, 18. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This Moses, who entered into the cloud as it rested on the mountain, as the glory of the Lord rested on Sinai, he entered in, he was called in. Now we find at the end of the book, when that cloud moves from the mountaintop down to where the people are, when it rests on the tabernacle, and when the glory of the Lord does not rest on the mountaintop, but rests at ground level with his people, now all of a sudden, Moses cannot enter in. At the very least, at the very least, what this must mean is that no matter what God gives to his people by way of himself, when he makes himself known, when he allows himself to be heard, when he makes his presence felt, no matter how strong or powerful it is, that is never the full extent of who God is. You, you see that? What Moses got on the mountaintop was enough that the people were terrified at the sight and the sound. Moses was invited in. He was allowed to come in to the visible display and manifestation of God's presence at Sinai. Yet somehow, in some way, a measured display of God's presence and reality so that Moses would not be annihilated. As 
awesome as what that manifestation of God's presence was, it does not compare to the manifestation of God's presence in this little tent. So concentrated and so full that not even Moses, who is said to speak with God face to face, can enter in and break through. Do you ever think about the fact that there is no end to the God that we worship? That God is so immense in His infinite nature, in His perfections, in the source and being of all life, that if God were ever even to begin to unleash His presence to us in such a way, we would have, at the very least, a psychological breakdown. At worst, we would be annihilated. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. Just the train of his robe fills the temple. And the seraphim, the angels who were created to be there in the throne room, even the ones who are created to be there cannot look directly, fully, on the glory of the Lord. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1 that God is the King eternal, immortal, and invisible. The invisible God. Then, at the end of 1 Timothy... See if you can square this circle. He says in 1 Timothy 6 that God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. This God whom no man has seen or can see. He is invisible and he dwells in unapproachable light. This is the problem with trying to convey the incomprehensible God to mortals like us. How can he be at one and the same time invisible and dwell, live in unapproachable light? The best stab that this weak, frail mind can give is to say something like this, that although God as spirit is invisible, that he cannot be touched or handled or felt or seen, Because the nature of God is infinite in its perfections and he is awesome in power, that his invisible nature is such that it radiates visible light. And this God comes down to mingle with dust. Say what you will 
about God and what it means to enter into his presence. But rightly understood and growing in our awareness and understanding as best we can of who God is and what he is like, you have to realize that when you see the fact that Moses cannot enter in, we are being reminded again of the sheer transcendence and difference of the God that has saved us and the God that we worship. This is a God who cannot be tamed. He cannot be contained. He cannot be controlled. You cannot approach him casually like you would your neighbor or your friend or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. That is not God. But then we read stunningly jaw-dropping statements like Hebrews 10. Turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith. The glory of God is such that Moses cannot enter in. Hebrews says that because of Jesus, we have confidence to enter in. Jesus has changed everything. We may not be comfortable with God, but we can be confident with God. Not because of our efforts, not because of our works, not because we're deserving, but because of what Christ has done for us. Christ opens up the way for humanity to enter into the presence of God, to enjoy him, rather than to be snuffed out by him. And all that God would give to his people throughout Scripture is nothing more than a mediated, moderated measure of himself. Because there is never going to be a point in time in which we will experience all that God is. You understand that there is coming a day when this world is remade, when we will be in God's presence in a new heaven and new earth. His glory, we're told, will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. God's people will live forever. They will never die. And never dying, you will not have a single day in which you say, I've come to see everything that God is. 
forever never gets to the end of God. Forever we will be receiving what God gives to his people for our joy and for our blessing. It beggars the imagination. God's glorious presence is unapproachable, and yet in Christ, we have confidence to draw near. Number two, God's presence leads his people home. Look with me at verses 36 and 37. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle or from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. throughout all their journeys. In other words, when God comes and dwells among his people, he intends to come and stay. Or, more broadly, we can say this. This is in part in fulfillment to the very near promise and assurance that God gave to Moses in chapter 33. Remember, when instead of annihilating the people for their sin, God spares them? And Moses says, the only way that we will truly know that we have your favor is if you are with us, if we have your presence, because if you're not with us, how are we any different from all the other nations and peoples of the earth? And the Lord says to Moses, my presence will go with you. This is the fulfillment of that. But it's also the fulfillment of a much larger promise that was made far long before Moses and the people were ever on the scene. Hold your place here in chapter 40 and go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. The Lord says to Moses, as he is sending him to Egypt, to lead the people out. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. That would be gift enough. And he has come down to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. For all of their journeys, the presence of the Lord was with them. Meaning, not only was God there, but he was there to make sure that they made it all the way home. This is one of the recurring promises that go over and over again in Scripture. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will get home. And if you belong to the Lord you will get home. 
He does that today, not by making his presence known by sight, but through his word, by faith, by the presence of his spirit. Today, we walk by faith, not by sight. Sight is coming, right? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Sight is coming. That day when we will see all that we have believed and hoped for, that's coming. But for right now, we walk by faith and not by sight. So that Paul says in Romans 8, that all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. God has made himself known to us by the presence of his Spirit so that we will be sealed and preserved and kept in our faith and so that we will be led all the way home to enjoy God forever. The constant, steadfast presence of the Lord that his people enjoyed in the Old Testament is the constant, steadfast presence of the Lord that his new covenant people enjoy today in the presence of his Holy Spirit that he has caused to dwell within us. We are not poverty-stricken people when it comes to the blessings of God. Number three. God's presence is steadfast and known. The last verse, verse 38, For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. God descends, he comes to his people to dwell with them, and he comes to dwell with them in such a way that they can know that he is with them. There is no greater sign of God's favor and blessing and forgiveness to sinful people than to say that God has taken up residence with you. Any day, any night, that an Israelite would wonder, have I sinned so much that God has forsaken me? Have we messed up so badly that God is no longer with us? All they had to do was turn and look in the direction of the tabernacle, and they would see evidence of the fact that God remained with his people. You say, oh, if I had that, if I had that, I would never doubt, I would never fear I would never disobey. They did. But set that aside for a moment. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 14. And then after John 1, you're going to want to flip over to Revelation chapter 21. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, or literally 
tabernacled among us. And we beheld, we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. How can you know that God's favor is settled and sure on your life? How can you know that no matter how much you sin or how much you mess things up, God will never abandon you? You look to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You go back to the Word and you look at the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see with the eyes of faith the glory of God full in human form and offered up on our behalf as a sacrifice for our sins. They look to the tabernacle, we look to the cross, and we say, there's the evidence that God will never leave us. We have seen His glory. And then in Revelation 21, this is what we're looking forward to. This is part of what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. Revelation 21 Verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And then turn a few more verses over. Look at verses 22 and 23. Describing this day when God will tabernacle with his people again. Verses 22 and 23. I saw no temple in this new earth, in this new Jerusalem. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Do you know that there is coming a day for all of those who belong to God in Christ when the glory of the Lord will be so evident to the natural senses that it will make Exodus 40 look like a match in comparison to the sun. We will live every moment of our day seeing everything in the light of God's glory. The same way that we see everything when we go outside by the light of the sun, we cannot look at the sun it's too strong, we'd be blinded. But by the sun, we see everything that's around us. I think that's part of what's going to happen when God makes all of this new. His glory is going to so radiate the earth and our existence that everything that we see in the physical, material world will be illuminated by the light of His glory. Can you even begin 
to imagine what that will be like. But we have Exodus 40 to give us just a shadow of what's to come, just a foretaste. And part of that foretaste is what we do when we gather at the Lord's table. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is gathering with his disciples. And he says to them that he has been eagerly waiting to enjoy this last Passover meal with them. One of the reasons that he has been looking forward to this Passover meal is because Jesus himself says that he will never again share in this meal until he eats with us again in his kingdom. When the tabernacle of God is among men, when we see Christ for who he is in his glory and in the glory of the Father and in the Spirit, we will sit and eat with our Savior and with our King. This is what we remind ourselves of when we come to this table. This is what we remind ourselves of. This is the kindness of God that feeds and sustains his people so that we will not faint and fall along the way. But he sustains us so that we reach that final resting place. If you are not a Christian, if you have not been united by faith to Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on your behalf, understand that this is a unique gift and blessing that God has given to his covenant people. This is a covenant meal. Those who belong to the Lord in Christ have the rights and the privileges to sit at this table. If you're here as a guest, as a visitor, but you do not know the Lord as your Savior, we would just simply ask that as these elements are passed by, you just simply let it pass by you. Not to embarrass you, not to shame you in any way, but if, according to God's grace and kindness, to stimulate your appetite for spiritual things. Because you can know today that the life of Christ in his body and in his blood can be given to you today. Men, would you come forward, please, to distribute the bread? Thank you. 
in that meal that Jesus established for his disciples to participate in, including disciples in this present day, like us, he took the bread and he blessed it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Father, how we thank you that in your grace and mercy you gave the greatest gift, your son, and offered him over as a substitute and a sacrifice for our sins so that as his body was broken, as he was scourged, we could be made whole and healed. We thank you and praise you for the body of our Savior. Amen. In Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. As we take the cup, we are reminding ourselves that for those of us who have been given the privilege and the blessing to partake in this meal, it is a sign and a down payment that there is a greater meal and a greater feast in a perfect world that God is preparing for us. We will be invited to feast in the Lord's house. Men, would you come forward to distribute the cup?
Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Take and drink. Jesus, we praise you that you gave of yourself, not partially, but in whole. Having allowed your body to be broken and bruised, you gave even to the expense and the giving up of your own life. And by that life, we have been forgiven and sanctified by the regenerating and cleansing work of your Holy Spirit. We ask, Father, that you would continue to sanctify a people for yourself, for your glory and for the exaltation of your Son, and a demonstration of the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.